be as simple as saying, um, I'm nervous or I, I'm, I'm anxious in, in this situation. And actually that, that simple process of saying, I'm you know, labeling your emotion, labeling what you feel, saying I'm, I'm nervous right now, that in itself can help to begin to process the, 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 uh, the emotion that we might be feeling. And that in itself can be a, a regulation strategy. Because really what we're doing there is we're starting to, rather than fully experience the emotion and just you know get carried away in that emotion, we're starting to maybe think a little bit more about how, how am I feeling? Uh, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? So, so that chain of thoughts can really help us to start to, to first express, but then actually to, to help regulate that emotion and manage that emotion more effectively. Welcome back to the Namaste Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. We are on episode 2828. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as promised, you just heard from him. I have Dr. Noel Brick on the show today, who is a collegiate professor, ultra runner, and most recently published author. Today, I talked to Noel about his incredible book, The Genius of Athletes, which focuses on mental strategies that athletes and Olympians use to perform at their best. What I love about Noel in this conversation is how he draws parallels on the tools and genius of athletes and how you can apply those in your everyday life. You will get different and unique strategies, tips, and tools to equip you personally or professionally with goal setting, confidence building, and controlling your stress levels. Before we get too far into this though, Remember, Go, a brand new event, an in-person event featuring in-person speakers like Rich Roll, Jordan Burroughs, Cedric King, and others. This will be an incredible day mixed with inspiration and activity happening August 21st in the Chicagoland area. You can find out more at notalmostthere.com forward slash go. And I guarantee you, you will get a ton out of this event. Now, back to this episode, get on those shoes, get off your couch, go for a walk and learn about how we can apply the genius of athletes. Welcome, Noel, to the Not Almost There podcast. Hi, Joe. Um, thank, thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, it's, it's great to speak to you today, so, so thank you. Congratulations on the book, The Genius of Athletes. I just finished reading it, and uh, I know it just came out a couple weeks ago. Or... So, so just about a week ago, yeah, it was out on the, the 8th of June. Um, so delighted to, to finally have it out. Um, it was a long process um, writing the book with, with Scott Douglas, um, but an enjoyable one. So, so really, really pleased to see it out and really nice to finally get my hands on a copy of the, a hard copy of the book. That's been great. So Noel, why is learning to think like an athlete so important for everyday people? Well, that's a, that's a big question right in, but but I think, um, you know, a lot of, there's a phrase I keep coming back to and, and I kept coming back to when, when I was writing this book and it was a phrase that I sort of picked up from one of the fathers of sports psychology in Ireland, Professor Aidan Moore, and, and a phrase he, he used was, he, he described sport as what he called a natural laboratory. Um, and what he meant by that was that there's so much that happens in sport that, that is, you know, even in a single game, the pressure we might experience, the challenges we might experience, the emotions we might experience, 
are all kind of all capture things that we experience in everyday life. You know, in, in sport, we have to perform under pressure. In life, we've we've to perform under pressure, whether that's maybe, you know, a presentation at work, an interview, an exam, you know, whatever it might be. Um, we've got to overcome challenges. We've got to deal with failure. And all these things and the strategies that can help us through those um, relate to life as they relate to sport. Um, so the concept in, in this book, I guess, is that there's a set of tools or a set of strategies that athletes use uh, to help in those contexts, um, to, you know, how they speak to themselves, um, how they remain focused, how they maybe remain calm under pressure. Uh, and these the, these same strategies apply to everyday life. You know, if, if we're trying to perform under pressure, the same tools, the same techniques can help us in life as, as they do in sport. So that's broadly the sort of concept here. And I guess what we try to present in this book is a range of uh, evidence-based strategies, both in terms of what athletes do. Um, and the fun part for me, I guess, was, was learning a little bit about how these strategies apply in everyday life and, and digging into some of the evidence there, uh, which I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about as we go through the, the, the show, but uh, the evidence for how these strategies can help in everyday life as well. So so that's broadly what I guess we, we write about. And that's how... The concept of what athletes do relates to to what we do in everyday life as well. And that's what I really love about the genius of athletes. It is a field guide. It's not a conceptual framework of how to deal with stresses in life or how to perform under pressure. You actually provide tools and a toolkit of techniques and strategies that people can implement. And I've I find that very valuable, not only uh, having to perform in various ways, but also in my in my training. I think I mentioned to you off air that I'm training for a longer race, and I know many people are training for something, no matter what it is, if it is speaking in front of a crowd or if it's an endurance event, whatever it may be, that they can apply a lot of these concepts. But before we get into that toolkit, which I desperately want to today, why did you get involved in this? Like what drew you to the psychology of athletics and how to apply these techniques to everyday life? Yeah, so so, so I suppose just, just to give um, a little of my background first and then a little bit of a background to, to how the book evolved. Um, so I'm a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology. Um, I'm based in Ulster University in Ireland. And um, my research, uh, and really, I mean, kind of often when I'm kind of talking about this, I, I explain that my research is my hobby. My job is my hobby too. Um, I, I'm a long distance runner and, and I have been for many years. I've, I've completed many marathons and, and ultra marathons. Um, but, but through my interest in running and, and my hobby, um, alongside my role as, 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 a, as a scientist and, and as a psychologist, there's so many things I've experienced during running that, you know, at the end of a race, I, I would sometimes kind of reflect or even a training session, I would reflect, oh, that's, that, that's curious. You know, what, why did I think that way or why did I struggle with that challenge that I encountered in, in the middle of a race or whatever? Um, and, and I suppose through that process, I became interested in, in studying a little bit more um, what people think about, what people focus on uh, during activity. So, so my research is really all about that. It's, it's what athletes focus on. It's what athletes think about. It's the different strategies they use and how they use that to perform at their best, um, to, to overcome challenges, etc. Um, so in some of my research, I've, I mean, I've been so fortunate out of published studies where I've interviewed Olympic athletes and really the, the broad kind of question I've asked them is, 
um, well, a bit more nuanced than this, but the, the broad question has been, what do you think about? What, what do you focus on during a race? Um, and the answers that they sort of give sometimes are so intricate and so detailed and so precise in terms of maybe how they speak to themselves on occasions where, you know, sometimes I think if I was in that situation, I'd absolutely fall apart. I, I'd just stop. It's how they get themselves through those really challenging moments. Um, and, and to bring that around to, to, to the book, so um, Scott Douglas, my, my co-author, is um, he, he's written quite a number of books in the past on, on running, and, and one of his great books is uh, called Running is My Therapy. Uh, but through some email conversations, um, Scott, Scott wrote some articles for Runner's World on, on some of the research that I published. And we sort of, you know, through those email conversations, we, we just started to generate the idea. Scott came, first came up with, you know, a question, have you ever thought about writing a book about some of this stuff? Um, and through those email conversations um, and through some, some online conversations, we, we evolved the book and we evolved the ideas of effectively what, what you have in your hands, which, which is the genius of athletes. Um, and, and to sort of finish, I suppose, that, that kind of background story, you know, Scott's, Scott's strength is, is as, as, as a story writer and how to, um, to, to write, you know, um, what can be really difficult evidence strategy of evidence space for strategies in a way that's really easy to understand. As an academic, I may be used to writing in a slightly different way. So I think that marriage of, of Scott's ability to write really clearly um, and my sort of background in the science and, and research on this stuff, I hope what we've, we've sort of come up with is something that's, you know, a toolkit of strategies, but that's really easy to understand, to interpret and to apply um, with, with the narrative of some stories that we tell in the book around that. Yeah, mission accomplished. It was very easy to understand. And, and you're right, I've read other other things that it gets very complicated and very dense and it is hard to understand for the everyday person. But I think this book and the content within it is applicable to everything. Was there a defining moment that you had though when you were running or you hit a wall or maybe you did really well in a race that you were like, I really have to dig in there or I need to did you inherently like use some of these tools that we're going to talk about today to really want to dive deeper into them? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I think there's been different, for me, there's been different situations that have led to different studies. Um, th there's one one study that we conducted a few years ago, which um, I don't think the study, actually interesting, I don't think the study came into, made it into the book, but it just gives an example of how some of the my experiences as a runner as a runner have evolved into research studies and one of those I, I sort of noticed and just a, with a training partner on on a training run I noticed that sometimes so you might think it's it's kind of easier to run if somebody else is is taking the lead and doing the pace setting and stuff like that but what I kind of realized during that a particular one particular training one was that mentally I really struggled in a situation where I felt I wasn't in control of the pace and I wasn't the one who was maybe setting the pace and even though we you know we were taking turns leading and following and even though we might have been running in the at the exact same pace in both situations I found when I was leading it just felt easier and when I was the one who the pace was being set for I struggled I, I struggled with that almost what I perceived was a loss of control in that situation so that led to a study where I basically investigated the impact of perceptions of pace control on um, pacing, effort perception, etc. Um, so, so that's just one example of kind of a moment in, in my running experience which led to, to some research. 
on the flip side of that, the, the studies that I've done with, so these were qualitative interview-based studies with, um, I've published two studies, one that was with beginner runners and one that was with elite runners who competed at, you know, world championship, Olympic games, certain level. Uh, and really, again, asking them, you know, over the course of, you know, an hour and 90 minute interview, the kind of things they focus on, the kind of things they think about. And these athletes, especially the Olympic athletes, would really go into detail about how they would plan their thoughts. So, you know, if, if there was a race coming up and they maybe knew the course, if it was a cross-country course, let's say, for example, and they knew there was a steep hill at some parts of the course, they would plan what strategies they would use. They would almost to the detail of what I will say to myself to get up that hill as quickly as possible. What will I say to myself if I'm a marathon runner? What will I say to myself at mile 20, mile 21, where it's really starting to hurt? And, you know, I maybe have thoughts of, I can't make it to the finish line. What will I say to myself in that situation? So that's just one example of the kind of strategies that they would speak about. From my own hobby, from my own running experience, I guess I would then take that back and experiment with it. You know. What would I say? Would I say the same thing to myself? Would I evolve it in some way? What kind of mantra might I use that works for me in different situations? So, so it's kind of been this process of learning things in my hobby that has come into my research, and then my research informing what I do in terms of my own, I suppose, a my own um, uh, experience as a runner, but also then some of my applied work, um, some work that I might do with with other runners of, of strategies that might benefit them in similar situations. So one of the examples that you you talk about is the story of Keegan Randall. I almost want to start there to set up the toolkit and everything people can use because the story of what happened to her regarding getting diagnosed with cancer is not indifferent to what people go through in life when something bad happens to them or when something unexpected happens to them. And if you're listening to this and you're not an athlete, I want to start this off by showing how you can use these techniques to cope with everyday life and and actually use them to heal yourself in many ways. Can you unpack that story a bit with Keegan Randall? Yeah, so so um, just just some some background for context. So Keegan Randall was um, a U.S. cross country skier. Um, who won uh, the team sprint event at the 2018 Winter Olympics. Um, so, so absolutely top of her game uh, athlete who, she, she won some world championships as well, um, but strive through throughout her own, uh, her whole career to, to win that Olympic gold in, in February 2018. Uh, and a couple of months after that in April, so she tells this story in, in, in the book, uh, and actually I think just tells it absolutely wonderfully. Um, in April 2018, she, she found uh, a lump on her breast, which ultimately was diagnosed as, as uh, quite an aggressive type stage two uh, ca- uh, breast cancer. And she explains it in, in the book, I guess, the process that she went through of, first of all, you know, dealing with that diagnosis and, and how she felt, but very quickly deciding that she would um, tackle and, and deal with her um, cancer treatment as she dealt with challenges as an athlete. Um, and this was, you know, from kind of, I suppose, some of the, the strategies that she used were, you know, breaking it down into the, the step-by-step, the processes that, that, you know, would be involved in her treatment and, and how she would work through one stage at a time 
to some of the emotion regulation strategies that she used. And, and again, what was really interesting as part of the process of writing this book was um, alongside that story, building in some of the evidence of actually, you know, to deal with some of the emotions that might come along with a really traumatic event like a, a cancer diagnosis how some of these strategies can be beneficial to help to, to manage some of the emotions that we, we might experience. And, and what the research has shown is some of the strategies that, you know, she, she used, not just barely based on her experience as, as, as an athlete, um, but how she reappraised that situation, how she dealt with some of the, the, the feelings that she had um, about that situation. And the evidence would suggest that some of the, you know, the techniques she used like reappraising her emotions rather than trying to suppress some of her emotions actually helped to deal with some of the you know are associated with less distress um, uh, and more helpful emotions uh, related to, to breast cancer diagnosis so I don't know hopefully I've kind of got some of the story across there but but I think what was just overall so interesting about her story was how she sort of realized that some of the tools, some of the techniques that she'd learned as an athlete to, to perform at the highest level of her sport helped her through just a really traumatic and a really difficult time uh, in her life as well. And I suppose the last thing about that as well, and, and she's spoken about this quite openly, um, she has spoken a little bit about you know why she was so public in terms of uh, her cancer diagnosis and, and what she went through and I guess part of that was with the aim of helping other people who are maybe going through similarly traumatic events as well. So in that story with Keegan Randall one of the things that is really important for people to understand is you will feel emotions. What she did is she didn't suppress those emotions she expressed them. How important is it to not suppress these feelings that you may have because we all have negative feelings from time to time yeah um i mean huge hugely important um so i suppose we'll maybe sort of talk about i guess two two strategies um one is the the reframing the reappraisal strategy that that she talks about as part of, of that story um and also then suppression so yeah, I mean, really, the research on suppression would suggest that when we try to to suppress an, an emotion, if if that's our default strategy, if if every time we experience maybe an unpleasant or what we might think of as an unhelpful emotion, if we try to to hide it, to 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 push it down, to ignore it, so so that when we say suppression, those are the kind of things that we mean. That suppression is is actually associated with so many negative outcomes, from increased risk of depression, low self esteem. Um, and actually, very often when we try to suppress emotion, ultimately what happens is that we, we experience that emotion more intensely. Uh, and so ultimately, we probably release it in a more uh, potentially aggressive or, or violent uh, way rather than maybe using a more beneficial or uh, helpful strategy, which might be to, to express it in some way. Um, so I guess, you know, part of the Kick and Randall story is that by you know talking about how she felt by expressing that emotion and the difficult emotions that that she went through uh, falling from uh, her cancer diagnosis that in itself is is a hugely helpful emotion regulation strategy rather than trying to to hide it to pretend everything's okay to to not release it in in any way the other thing about emotion um, suppression and and we talked a little bit about this um in in the book in a different context as well is that when we suppress emotions, it, it, it takes a lot of self-control, it takes, it takes a lot of effort. 
um, to, to try to hide emotions that we might otherwise, um, you know, release or express in some way. Um, and this, there's actually been some really interesting research, and, and this is moving away for, for a second from the, the Kick and Randall story, which I'll come back to in, in the reframing strategy. But um, we, we do sort of um, go into some of the research on um, emotion suppression and how that impacts on um, athletic performance as a way of kind of explaining how it can impact in, in terms of performance in other areas of our life as well. And one of the studies that we um, explain in the, in the, the uh, book if it's okay to, to talk about this particular study, Joe, because it's um, uh, we're going to talk about disgust here as 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 an emotion. Um, this was a study that was done a number of years ago, where I think it was about 2014. Um, where the researchers wanted to look at the effects of emotion suppression on endurance performance. So what they did was they basically had participants do um, three um, 10K cycling time trials. The first one, there was no special circumstance. They just were asked to perform the 10K time trial as quickly as possible. And that was kind of their, their baseline level of performance. But in the next two time trials, in a random order, they, they, they watched a video before the next two time trials. And, and the video was of um, a person getting sick and then eating it back up again. Um, <laughs> I have never seen this video. I don't ever want to see this video. So eating, eating vomit. Eating vomit, yeah. Essentially. So, so, yeah. so the person getting sick and then eating their own vomit um, back up again. Yeah. Now, the very thought of that puts an image in my mind and <laughs> that I just want to get rid of straight away. And so in one of the conditions, the participants were allowed to express how they felt and, and naturally the emotion was discussed. So, they, you know, and it would simply be their facial expression or just a right. uh, if they, as they watch the video, whatever it might be, that that's releasing the emotion to a certain extent. But in the other time trial, they had to suppress the emotion so they couldn't release or reveal any uh, way that they felt. So no verbal exclamation, no facial expression, nothing like that. They had to hide it. And what they found was that in the suppression time trial, the participants performed about 2.3% slower than they did in the expression time trial. And the reason for that is that when we suppress the emotion, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of self-control to, to suppress an emotion like that. And that same self-control is important for a task like like performing a 10K uh, cycling time trial as quickly as possible. And we know that self-control, and, and there's a lot of science about you know how exactly this happens, but we know that self-control is, is, is a limited resource. That's one kind of argument about with self-control. So when we use it, we, we, we lose it to a certain extent. Um, and so when we use self-control to try to suppress an emotion, it reduces our ability to gauge self-control to, to kind of push ourselves to go as fast as we can in a cycling time trial. When otherwise, you know, every physiological experience or every thought we might have might be telling us to stop or to slow down. That takes self-control too. So, so as a side point, that's an interesting kind of um, study that shows how emotion suppression can be hurtful to performance in that way. And I sort of mentioned some of the negative long-term consequences of suppression related to mental health outcomes, uh, et cetera, as well. The the other strategy that, that um, Kick and Randall used, um, which comes through really, really strongly in, in her account, is uh, reframing or, or reappraisal. Um, and what's interesting about this strategy is that this is a strategy that we tend to use. It's called an antecedent focus strategy. And by that, what we mean is it's a strategy that we use ahead of experiencing an intense emotion or ahead of experiencing emotion more intensely. Uh, and reappraisal is really, or reframing is, is 
changing our thoughts about how we view a situation or what we think about us in, in a situation. So if, 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 I, if I would take a very common you know, um, scenario from sport or from giving a presentation or something like that, we, we might kind of think of, well, you know, all these people are going to be watching me, observing me perform, and, and I'm probably going to make loads of mistakes trying to perform in front of all these people because I'll be worried about what they think or what they say or how they evaluate my performance, be it in sport or, you know, whatever the life, life context might be. So that's the situation, and I probably can't really change that situation. I can't change the fact that there might be an audience there if, if I'm an athlete uh, or giving a presentation. So I might reframe that situation, and what I might do is sort of think, well, you know what? The audience doesn't really change the, the content of what I'm going to do or say. The, the audience doesn't have a direct impact on how I perform, be it as an athlete or as a presenter. Um, and so while there be, might be there, I might change and, and reframe what I actually focus on and what I think about uh, in that situation. Um, and that can be a really helpful and a really useful strategy to ultimately change the emotions or the intensity of the emotions that I might experience by having those more helpful thoughts. So, I'm, you know, before giving a presentation, I might still feel nervous, I might still feel a little bit anxious, but probably not to the same intensity as my original appraisal might 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 ultimately lead to. Um, so again, that that's a really helpful um, emotion regulation strategy that kind of targets emotions before we experience them really intensely. Um, and, and one I think that that's kind of a really helpful tool to to use as well. So Noel, how do you actually express your emotions there? And what I mean by that is, do you? journal do you talk to someone how do you get those emotions out yeah so 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 both those ways are really effective and beneficial ways of uh, expressing rather than than suppressing an emotion um you, you mentioned journaling and, and journaling is is one really helpful and, and useful way to 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 express how we feel and, and again a lot of research actually supports the use of journaling um especially you know if we've been through really traumatic events and, and challenging events in, in our life and uh, and simply by journaling what we mean is um just 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 writing about our experience um writing about how we feel writing about what we've been through writing any thoughts that we might have about that experience and uh, and what the research would suggest about journaling is that that simple act of um expressing how we feel by writing about it in that way can give us a little bit, I guess, of, of mental space just to help to process those emotions and start to deal with those emotions very much in a different way to what we might do if, if we were trying to suppress them. Um, but you're right, in the exact same way that, you know, going back to that disgust study, simply by, by saying, oh, that's disgusting, or my facial expression is, is communicating how I feel to somebody else, talking through those things with somebody else if, if that's you know possible and if there's somebody that you can you can talk to about how you might be feeling about something again that's a very very helpful and very beneficial way of expressing those emotions rather than, than suppressing them so folks that deal with something like social anxiety or they're going to a party and they're nervous about meeting someone does that does that apply in a similar way in in that like let's say I'm going to a party with my wife, I would want to talk about how I'm feeling before I actually get there, and that's going to give me some benefit. Yeah, absolutely, um, and it can be as you know, it can be as simple as saying, um, "I'm nervous" or "I'm I'm anxious in, in this situation," and actually that. 
that simple process of saying I'm you know labeling your emotion labeling what you feel saying I'm I'm nervous right now that in itself can help to begin to process the 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 uh, the emotion that we might be feeling and that in itself can be a, a regulation strategy because really what we're doing there is we're starting to rather than fully experience the emotion and just you know get carried away in that emotion we're starting to maybe think a little bit more about how how am i feeling uh, what am i feeling what am i thinking so so that chain of thoughts can really help us to start to to first express but then actually to, to help regulate that emotion and manage that emotion more effectively and um, so even that simple act of labeling and naming how you're feeling and saying you know i'm feeling pretty nervous right now can actually be a helpful thing one of the one of the examples in your book you talk about i think it i think you pronounce her name allison felix um and how she goes about creating worrying time like a time to actually express worrying uh and then another example is serena williams and how she journals negative emotions So that that worry time idea again. This is this is um, this is an evidence based strategy of dealing very specifically with with worries or, or anxiety, um, and the process that we do um, to, to kind of simplify it in, in kind of a, a quick message. We go into a bit more detail, but to simplify that is first of all spending. It, it sounds like it shouldn't work, but it really does. It's spending a little bit of time deliberately, maybe as part of your day or as part of your week, to worry on purpose. Um, so maybe set aside, you know, 15, 20 minute time period. And, and this kind of links a little bit with the journaling idea. But during that time period, write about all the things that you're worried about, all the thoughts that come into your mind. Um, I find this for, for, for me, um, sometimes maybe before a presentation or, or you know, even a, a recording like this or sometimes that, that you might be a little bit anxious about. Spend some time deliberately worrying and writing down all the things that you might be worried about. Um, and so what you generally tend to find, what I tend to find at least anyway, is that you reach a point in that process, maybe sort of 10 minutes in where you feel you've got everything down on paper. Um, but use the full time, use the full 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you, you give yourself. That's the first step. The next step is to then look at all the things that you wrote down and think, okay, of these worries, is there anything I can do about some of these worries? Is there any of these worries that I can actually take action on? Uh, and so you might write down a number one beside all of those worries. So these are things that I can do something about. The other ones you might label as a two or a three. A two might be, you know, I think there's something I can do about this, but I'm not sure. Um, so it's, it's an in-between one. And threes are, you know, they're worries that I might have, but actually I can't really do anything about them. So going back to the earlier example, presenting in front of an audience or playing a game in front of an audience. Well, I can't really do anything about that audience in terms of their reactions or, or, or whatever. So it's not a worry that I can really do something about it. And so the strategy there might be more about reframing it or uh, accepting it in, in a different way. But the things that I can do something about, I follow up my worry time by taking action on those things. Um, so if there's a situation where I can maybe take a little bit more control or that I can actually do something about something I'm worried about. So, so again, if I feel uh, going into a presentation that actually, you know, if I get asked a question and I don't feel well prepared to answer that question, well, well that's something I can do something about. Uh, and so by going through that process, I began to actually take 
more positive action and, and maybe tackle and do something about some of those things that, that otherwise, you know, if we compare this to the suppression strategy, there might be things I'm worried about that I could do something about, but by ignoring that feeling, ignoring, ignoring that emotion, I'm actually, you know, ultimately I'm not really helping myself because I'm not going to take positive action as a result of that. So, so that worry time can be hugely beneficial. I think maybe just, just the last thing to say on that is after worry time, I think it's really useful to have something then to distract yourself because naturally outside of worry time, your mind will start to go back to those things that you were worried about. And if it's to take action on some of the ones, brilliant. Okay, that, that's what we want to do. But also maybe having some time where you deliberately do something to distract yourself to, to, to you know, when you come out of that worry time to distract your mind from naturally going back to, to some of the things you might worry about. And a strategy there might be, okay, I'm going to worry about this on purpose again tomorrow. I'll have my worry time tomorrow, but right now this is my family time or this is my time for doing something else and I'm not really going to focus on it until my deliberate worry time tomorrow. So, so worry time can be hugely uh, useful. And you mentioned some of the athletes there who have spoken about deliberately using this as a strategy to, again, manage their thoughts, process their thoughts, process emotions that they might be feeling ahead of an event or after an event. Um, and so combined, you know, we talk about a few different journaling type strategies in the book. Worry time is one. Expressing our emotions by writing about them is another. And all these can be really helpful strategies for, for those different contexts. What are some other rituals that you can do before an event? What, again, whatever that event may be, athletic events, performance. What are some of the other things that can build up that confidence? Yeah. One, one I find really helpful for me, and, and uh, we set out this strategy on, on the book, and it's something that I use quite a bit with athletes. Some of the athletes I work with think this is probably the only thing that I do because I do speak about it quite a bit. But one thing that I think is really useful, and I slightly mentioned it there earlier, is, is focusing on whatever the situation might be, thinking and focusing on the things that I have control over. Um, it is such a useful um, strategy. It's one of the things actually, um, there's, there's a really um, prominent theory in, in sport and exercise psychology, uh, which I frame a lot of my work around, which is called the theory of challenge and threat states in, in sport. And this is based on a number of other theories that have come from outside of sport. But what, one of the things it suggests is that one of the techniques, one of the strategies that can help us view a situation as more of a challenge, which, which is a good thing, we, you know, something we look forward to and feel excited about, versus a threat, which is generally something that we want to avoid and that we don't feel so good about, that we might feel really worried about. One of the things that makes the difference between a challenge and a threat is our perception of control in that situation. And naturally, when we think about situations, let, let's say it's, it's an exam, let's say it's a presentation, or let's say it's a big game, we very often focus our attention on all the things that we can't control. Uh, the audience, the crowd, for athletes, they sometimes think about, you know, the, the venue, the, the, the occasion itself, and even actually ultimately whether we win or lose. The, a lot of these things are outside of our direct control. In, in some sports, I could play as well as I possibly ever could, you know, if I'm a golfer, but I might not win because somebody just plays that a little bit better. So by focusing on the things that we can control, it, that greater perception of control can really help us in terms of whether we experience negative states, like a threat state, like 
feeling really anxious or more positive states like feeling excited and looking forward to, to the event that we're about to partake. And so the things that we can control or at least have some control over might be my own actions, you know, how I manage my emotions, how, how I prepare for that event. Some of these things I've mentioned already. So that's one thing that's really, really useful is, okay, you can sort of do this by writing down a list, take a single sheet of paper, split it into to two columns, First column is things I can control, 100% completely control. And the second column is things that are outside of my control. And, and just develop your list. And really where we want to put our focus is on that first column, the things we can control. Some things will be, you know, 50-50, I maybe can influence, but I can't completely control. Um, but our focus really is best on those things that we have control over. So, so, so that is one strategy that I find, you know, really useful um, before an event. Um, a second one, if, if, if I can mention it as well, is um, things that we might do to deliberately build our, our self-confidence or, or our self-belief. That's what I was um, going to ask next. And I think this yeah. is especially important. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Okay. So uh, leading in. Um, it's, it's one of these things that, again, can make the difference between whether we see something as a threat that we want to avoid or a challenge that we're excited about taking on. And so strategies to, to build our confidence one thing I suppose just to explain first of all is, is, is where this type of confidence comes from. And specifically, we're talking about something here called self-efficacy, which is our belief in our abilities to you know, meet a challenge or, or to, to successfully you know, complete a, a goal or an outcome that we, we've set for ourselves. And the key thing about that is that it's, it's our perception, it's our belief about that we have the abilities or, or that we have the ability to complete that task. And this goes back to some work that was done by a scientist called uh, Albert Banjuri, who was a social psychologist, and he developed this idea of self-efficacy back in the 1970s. And what he said was that there are four key sources of self-efficacy, um, and some are stronger than others. He suggested the most, the strongest one he called mastery experiences or, or previous accomplishments. So, so think about it very simply this way, you know, if, if you've run a marathon in the past, you'll probably feel pretty confident that you could do it again. So, so ahead of your next marathon, you might feel pretty confident because of that last previous accomplishment, finishing one before. But if you haven't done one before, then how you build that confidence can be, can be quite a challenge. So, so that's one source. And I'll talk about some of, the, some of the strategies that you can use to build that. There are other sources. He suggests a slightly weaker, Bajira suggests a slightly weaker, but um, important sources nonetheless. Um, a second one was um, called a vicarious experience or, or social modeling, learning from other people. So again, if I use the marathon example, uh, and I know, Joe, you're trained for, for an ultramarathon. So again, this might be, you know, some of the sources for, for you as well. So a second source is, you know, if you know somebody, you know, that you would say is just like me, maybe similar background or level of experience or fitness or whatever it might be, and they've done an ultra, well, you know what, if they've done one, I can do it too. So, so that can be a source of confidence as well. Uh, and, and we can strengthen that source by, you know, first of all, if they're comparable to us. Um, so if, if they have similar experiences as us, do similar training, even all those kind of things, and we compare ourselves favorably to, to them, then that can raise our confidence. Whereas if, if I have absolutely nothing I can compare to that person, if this, if this person is like, you know, an Olympian that I have absolutely no comparison I feel with, then, then actually that won't have a huge effect. So, so their status is, is quite important to that. 
Um, a third one he called verbalist persuasion. Um, and this is the things that other people say to ourselves. So, so I'm sure you've got lots of friends that are saying, you can do it, Joe, you, you, can, you can finish this thing. And even those things that a crowd might say to us, cheering us on in the sideline, can be an important source of confidence, like, um, you know, keep going or, or whatever it might be. The magic thing about this is that this also includes our own self-talk. The, the things that we say to ourselves is really important for this source of confidence as well. Uh, and so whether our self-talk is more defeatist, like, you know what, I don't think I can do this, or whether our self-talk is saying things like, I can do this, or whatever it might be. Again, that, that's important for our self-belief and our self-confidence as well. Um, and then the final one, which is quite interesting, the final one is how we perceive and how we interpret our own um, physiological states and emotional states. Um, and, and this is one that's quite interesting, and, and I'll kind of give an example of, of how, we, how, how we interpret our own physiological states can impact on uh, how we feel, uh, and especially in terms of our worries and, and our self-belief. Self this is an exercise I do with, with my students in class sometimes. So, what I'll do is I'll pop up on the screen a number of different physiological um, symptoms or, or, you know, so it might be an increased heart rate, um, heavier breathing, tense muscles, uh, starting to sweat. Uh, and I'll give three options and the three options will be, um, what state do you think this is? Do you think this is anxiety? Do you think this is excitement? Or do you think this is somebody doing physical exercise? Uh, and I've kind of probably have framed it in the context of, of, you know, the topic that we're covering. But generally what I tend to get back is a pretty even mix of some people think that's that's the excitement that you might feel if you're really looking forward to something. Some people think, think it's anxiety. Some people think, oh, well, that's somebody exercising, increased heart rate, starting to sweat, etc. And I say I did this with a group um, about two or three weeks ago and I got an exactly 50-50 split between excitement and anxiety. And what that shows is that how we interpret, you know, so, so all the, it could be all of those things. We, we have similar physiological responses to all those things, but how we perceive that and how we interpret that informs what we feel about a situation. And very often in a performance pressurized situation, we interpret those physiological symptoms as basically a message saying, I'm really nervous about this situation. I can't do this. I'm clearly not prepared. My body is telling me all these things that I'm really anxious and really nervous. So how we interpret our physiological symptoms uh, is really interesting. And, and going back to the reappraisal strategy that we spoke about, one reappraisal, reappraisal that athletes often use there is reappraising those self-same symptoms as, you know, this isn't necessarily anxiety. This is my body getting ready to prepare its best. I feel excited for this event and my body is helping me to perform at my best. So again, that's a reappraisal of those physiological symptoms to, to a much more helpful uh, thought about them and also a much more helpful emotional state. I feel excited rather than, than I feel uh, nervous. So to, to, to kind of round it off then, so some, some strategies to, to help build confidence based on those. So, so if our previous performance accomplishments are our strongest source of, of confidence or self-efficacy, for me, one of the most important strategies that we can do is as we kind of achieve milestones, as we kind of achieve goals, maybe along a training process or a preparation process for events, it's so important that we record those in some way. And for me, the easiest way for that as an athlete is, is a training diary where, you know, when I have a good session, I write that down and I highlight that session in my diary as, you know, that is a session that's telling me I am, you know, I, I may not be ready to do that event, whether it's a marathon or an ultramarathon right now, 
but I am getting fitter, I am getting stronger. Even again, how we interpret physiological responses, I am feeling stronger at the end of a run. That's telling me that I'm getting better at this thing. And all that stuff by recording it, by making that the focus of my attention, by highlighting it in my diary, by putting that at the center of the belief that I'm trying to build for that event, that, it, that is such an important process. So for me, that, that's one very simple strategy is, is recording and, and, and keeping a diary and, and as I take off goals and complete training sessions that go really well, making sure that those are at the center of, of, of building my belief for that event. Do you have students that are using apps or other things outside of a diary that you'd actually write down previous accomplishments in and what are some best practices for that? Yeah, I think so. I think I think whether you keep it in a diary, whether whether you keep it in an app, um, I, I so so I use a running app um, alongside my diary, and, and what I do again in, in that running app is is sometimes I, I just go back and I kind of go back to key sessions, um, and and I think this is an important process. One thing that I really do is just sometimes sit with those and savor those, while just kind of flicking through them and, and think, oh, that's just a training right. session I did. Because when you, I guess, pre-event, when, you, when you're really anxious and when you're really nervous, just sitting and savoring some of those those milestone sessions or whatever that you completed is, is so important. So so coming back to, to students, yeah, you know, whether you sort of use a specific app or whether you use a diary or whatever it might be, really the, the, the process is the same. That you're feeding, you know, you're, you're feeding your confidence with those controllable sources and, and the most strong sources are... Uh, again, linked with mastery achievements, my physical preparation, my mental preparation, um, the skills that I develop, be that as you know, as a runner or, or whatever, or a student or, or whatever it might be, uh, all those things are really important. And, and even you know, mental preparation is part of that. And um, part of that mental preparation might even be, you know, for this event that I'm preparing for, if there are certain obstacles that I think I'm likely to to come up against, very often we ignore those thoughts. We think, oh, don't think of all the bad things that can happen because if I think about it, I'll, I'll almost think it into existence. But actually spending some time thinking about the obstacles, thinking about the challenges that I might come up against and thinking about how will I respond to those challenges? How will I act if I encounter that challenge? That can be a really useful strategy as part of my mental preparation as well. Um, and that can be linked with some other psychological tools, techniques like, like imagery. So imagining myself in that situation, but imagining myself coming through it, working through it, what I would say to myself to keep myself going, all those kind of things can, can be really useful, be it as an athlete or be it as a student doing a presentation, whatever it might be, that the same principles apply. What's the running app that you use before I forget to ask you? I didn't want to mention it just in case, but it's, so I use Strava. For, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then Strava feeds into like even training peaks. I don't know if you've used training peaks in the past, but that's a really good way to kind of chart your progress over time. And there's a lot of enhanced metrics in there. So I'd, I'd recommend that if someone is training for an, an endurance sport, but if not, if you're training for, Speaking in front of an audience, as an example of we've been using, you know, you can chart that down in many places as well. Um, the uh, the mental imagery side, I think that is so important because you're you're trying to place yourself in a position where you've been there, 
And by visualizing that, even if you haven't done it before and you could watch, like in my example, I'm starting to watch the the race that I'm going to be in because there was previous races. And I'm trying to imagine myself starting off the race, running up this mountain, which to me is daunting. Like I think about that, like starting off exhausted, but I've already kind of been there a few times in my mind, in my mind's eye. The one example that you use in the book that I think is super profound and very relevant that people would uh, would understand is the Michael Phelps example. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, so so a very specific example. He, he's, he's kind of spoken about this, and, and actually he's spoken about how he uses imagery or how, to, how he used imagery as an athlete to prepare almost all the time. Uh, and and what, what he would sort of prepare for um, would be um, what could happen, so, so, so the likely things, that, you know, in terms of race, how it might play out, uh, what he wanted to happen, so like the, the perfect race, the perfect event, uh, and then what he didn't want to happen, so all the, the bad things that could ultimately happen. And the, the story that we tell in the book was from the uh, 2008 uh, Olympic Games where, I mean, one, one, probably one of the ultimate things that he wouldn't want to happen uh, as a swimmer would be that your goggles start to leak and, and to fill with water. Um, and this was exactly what happened to him in an Olympic final, the 2008 Olympic Games, the 200 meter butterfly final. Um, and the reason why I guess that's such a bad thing as a swimmer is because as your goggles start to fill with water, you can't see the lane markers. You don't really know when you're getting to the end of the lane and you have to do a turn. And as he dove into the pool, his goggles started to, to gradually leak and fill up. And by the time he got to the last length of the 200 meters, so it's four lengths, um, by the time he got to that last length, he, he, he literally was swimming blind. He, he couldn't see where he was. He couldn't see where his competitors were. He couldn't see the lane markers in the pool. So between um, his, his coach, Bob Bowman, and, and himself, they, they sort of come up with various um, scenarios, but also how they would handle those scenarios, what strategies they would use, should the worst kind of things happen. The worst things could be a suit ripping, goggles filling with water, etc. And ultimately it played out. And the solution that they came up with and what he would visualize uh, doing in that situation was, so should such a scenario happen, he would start to count, um, knowing that it would take him 21 strokes to swim the length of the pool. That was his, his uh, the number of strokes it would require for him. So when his goggles started to leak and fill up, he started counting. Um, and I guess what, what that really helped with was instead of panicking instead of thinking oh what do I do now and not having a response for that situation he had a response which helped him to stay calm and to stay focused on the processes needed to swim as fast as he possibly could which was focusing on his strokes and so as he went down the final length and he reached 18 19 20 he reached out for the, the wall on 21 and the ultimate story was that he won that race won the Olympic gold in a world record time and what that shows is that, you know, thinking about those things that could go wrong and having a strategy, not just in terms of what we do, but also what, how we would think in that situation is so helpful to, to almost have an automatic, virtually automatic type response should that situation ar ar arise. So similar for a race, you know, you might think, well, you know, what happens if, if that hill is really steep or, you know, if, if I run out of water before the next checkpoint and all those kind of things, how will I deal with those situations? 
that can be such a useful scenario because if you think about it, and again, whether this is a presentation or whatever it might be, going back to what we said about worries, etc. These are all things we might worry about that might make us really anxious before that, that uh, performance situation. But if I have a plan, no matter what the worry is, if I've got a plan to deal with it, well, it's not so much of a worry anymore. I know how I'll deal with that should it happen anyway. So I kind of will probably feel a little bit more relaxed going into the event, regardless of, of, of how it actually plays out because I've, I've got a plan. A great example too in business is let's call it a press conference or an uh, investor questions, maybe after an earnings call, what you want to do is think about everything that you think could be asked because, you know, granted, there's a possibility that something's asked that you haven't thought of, but the fact that you went through that exercise and you thought about the top 20 questions that could be asked and you have good answers for them just gives you that confidence that you're ready for it and you're going to start answering questions much, much differently than if you hadn't prepared at all. So I think that's a that's a really good point. And, and even, you know, if, if I do get asked a question that I haven't prepared for and I don't have an answer, what, what will I do? And, you know, part of that strategy could be, you know, okay, I'm just going to count to five. I'm just going to take a deep breath right. and count to five and, and give myself that space to think. Because very often we, we panic and we just say the first thing that comes into our mind. And I know from my experience, that's very often not a good thing. So, so, so again, that's part of my process. I'll, I'll, I'll slowly count. I'll take my time. Uh, and that just gives me the space to, to gather my thoughts uh, and to maybe sort of think of an answer. And, and that's certainly something that, that helps me for those unplanned questions as well. And that's kind of what I want to talk about now is, is you have this game plan going in it, going in whatever you're doing. And now you're in it. And things do go awry. Everything that you, all these techniques maybe start to dissipate or your fear has, is winning. What are some of the methods that you can do? Um, I know from a, the reappraisal strategy, shifting from negative talk to positive talk is one of them. But there's a lot of others. What are some of those that you are finding the most impactful? Mm. Um. I think in a performance situation like that, so, so again, as you mentioned, there's lots of different strategies. Uh, the one I just mentioned is, is, is so helpful, and I'll maybe just dig in a little bit more why as, as a start, and then we'll talk about one or two other strategies as well. So, so that simple strategy of, of taking a deep breath. Um, one of the things I guess that happens you know, when, when things go wrong is, is that we very often we, we panic, we experience an increase in, in anxiety, and, and that's, that's called a higher arousal state. And, and I guess one of the first things that we want to do to, to calm down is, is to lower our level of arousal. So taking a, a slow, deep, what's called a centering breath can be a really useful strategy just to, to, to do the first thing, to, to lower our level of arousal. And a centering breath, very simply, I mean, is, is taking a slow breath to that kind of three or to kind of five that, that I mentioned just now. A second strategy very often that we want to do is that we want to refocus our attention. Um, and, and one way that athletes do that is by, the phrase that I kind of use sometimes with, with athletes is that we want to get out of our own head. You know, sometimes we just go into our own head, our, our panicky worry thoughts or whatever it might be. And what we want to try to do is get control back over our attention. 
Um, so something that's very useful to do there is, is to de deliberately focus on something external to us. So for now, you know, in, in a ball sport or a stick sport game, that might be focusing on the ball or that might be focusing on the stick or, or whatever it might be. It might be focusing on the goalpost. It might be focusing on the 20 of the 20 yard line, whatever it might be, something to focus your attention on externally. Because what that does is a, it helps to get um, out of your own mind and break the cycle of, of worry thoughts that you might have. And then B, it really helps to, to regain and, and, and recontrol your attention. Um, and then I guess the third thing is maybe having kind of trigger words or, or trigger phrases or things that you might say to yourself uh, in the moment. And th those can be very simple things. You know, again, if you find that you're getting, you know, really negative thoughts about, you know, I can't go on anymore, I can't do this, I have to stop right now. Very simple self-talk strategies like, I can do this, this is tough right now, but I can keep going. Um, those are really helpful statements that you might say to yourself. I, I sometimes use a mantra, and, and my mantra in running that really helps me when I'm struggling is uh, strong and powerful. And, and I say it in that way because I put it to a four-step count. So I go strong and powerful, strong and powerful. And what that does for me is, first of all, it gives my busy mind something to focus on when otherwise I might be having unhelpful thoughts. Um, but also, I'm a runner, and what that does is it helps focus my attention on my cadence and put a bit of rhythm back into my cadence. And I might just need to do that for a minute. I might need to do it for five minutes, whatever. It gets me through that moment. Uh, and sometimes I kind of reflect, you know, when we have a thought during a race, and I know I'm talking about a very specific scenario here, but sometimes when we have a thought during a, an endurance race, like, I can't go on any further, spending a minute just having a mantra like that and getting control back over your attention, you've already proved that voice was a liar. You know, it said a minute ago, I couldn't go on any further, and yet here I am a minute later. So so that helps us to get through those doubts and get through those moments um, and, and, and ultimately to, to keep going. So, so those are some strategies. Um, breath control to lower level of arousal, regaining control over our attention, and maybe having some mantras or, or trigger words that we might use uh, to, to kind of, I guess, challenge sometimes those negative thoughts that we might be experiencing. This self-talk that I found fascinating was the second person versus first person self-talk. And I had never heard that before, and it makes complete sense. And I'd love for you to share that because I do think that's important as people are listening and want to take these techniques, just the, it's not necessarily just saying things to yourself, but what you say to yourself matters. Yeah. So, so this is, well, a few really interesting studies, one, one with athletes and, and one with um, non-athlete situation, actually. So, so basically in this one particular study, and what they did was they had, uh, I think it was cyclists again, similar to the previous one, doing a 10K cycling time trial. Um, but basically what they had them do was, after a baseline, develop a list of motivational statements. Uh, and again, it could be things like, um, I can do this, I can push through this, I can keep going. But in the, the two time trials that followed, in one of them, they spoke to themselves in, themselves in the first person. So again, it was those, I can do this, I can push through the statements. And in the second one, they spoke to themselves in the third person. So you can do this. You can push through this. And what they found was that participants performed better in the third person self-talk condition than they did in the first person self-talk condition. Even though they found the statements equally motivating, they actually were faster when they were speaking to themselves in the third person. 
So it was, a, it was an absolutely fascinating story. And when I read it, it was like, this has to go in the book. It was so interesting. And the fun part for me then was researching a little bit more about this in, in a non-sporting context. Uh, and what the science suggests is that when we do that, so when we speak to ourselves in a first person context, um, like I can do this, or actually sometimes, you know, I can't do this. This is called a self, self-immersed perspective. We're literally in the middle, immersed in the emotions and the negative thoughts that we might be having. And we probably experience them a little bit more intensely in that self-immersed perspective. The third person is called a self-distance perspective. And this is kind of almost taking the, the position of a friend or a coach speaking to you uh, and things they might say, like, you can do this, you can push through this. And when we distance ourselves, that it's a mental cognitive sense of distance between us and what we're experiencing. The, the science would suggest that we can handle that situation, we can deal with that situation um, a little bit better. And, and a story that I love in, in one of the uh, non-sport studies that, that sort of um, focused on the I versus you type self-talk. Um, in this particular study, the, this paper, they did a series of studies on I versus you in different contexts. Uh, one of them was people giving a presentation um, felt less anxious, but actually were rated by viewers as performing better when they spoke to themselves in the third person versus the first person, um, the you versus the I. But the one I love is um, a narrative of somebody, I think, who was on a very anxiety-provoking first date. Um, and the narrative was, you know, the things they were saying to themselves, like, you know, oh, pull it back, man, you, you can do this, you can, you know, oh, why did I say that? And, you know, and it's just really interesting, but 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 again, the idea was that when they were speaking to themselves in the you know, you you can do this or um, come on man, get through this, it, it was much more helpful for them, and they were able to deal with some of the anxiety and some of the negative thoughts and experiences that they were encountering. So, I think the reason I mentioned that is it shows how these strategies that athletes use can apply to almost any experience, from from a presentation to a first date, and can be equally helpful in in both. Yeah, that's it's super fascinating research, and I would highly suggest that that you you try it. And in fact, last night I was playing uh, pickleball of all things, and I hadn't I haven't heard someone do this in a long time. And I just read the book, and the person I'm playing with, my partner in, in pickleball, she missed a shot, and she's like Maria, like talking to herself from the outside, like, you're better than this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it was so relevant because I had just read it versus like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she was just, you know, she was coaching herself and it was, it was amazing. I could tell she was an athlete. And if, you, if I think long and hard about it, I have heard that before in my life. And, and it stems from a lot of athletic competitions and people talking to themselves in that way. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I think that's interesting. And, and you're right, you know, referring to, to ourselves by, by our own names is, is the exact same thing, the, the third person perspective. Um, and I suppose, you know, from a very kind of personal account, sometimes when I think, you know, for, for me as an athlete, when I'm performing at my worst, I really am doing, you know, oh, I suck at running. I'm, I, I, I'm awful at this. I can't do this. You know, I can't complete this marathon. It's, it's very much in the middle of it. And so being able to have a strategy that allows us to separate us from the experience uh, can, and, and be our own coach, you know, in, in that example that you just mentioned can be so, so relevant and so helpful. Now you had, you had mentioned PMR and uh, there's another method that I've recently used that I learned from you, the five, four, three, two, one method. 
And this is really applicable because as we embark on any journey, you can you can get frustrated along the way or, or something can happen. In fact, uh, no, the, the title of this podcast, Not Almost There, is from a race I did the Chicago Marathon in 2015. And at mile 13, uh, I actually explained this to Alex Hutchinson as well. At mile 13, I was I saw this sign and it said, Not Almost There. And up until that point, I was cruising. I was feeling great. I'm like, I can run two of these. Mile 13, I see that sign. It got so in my head that I, I crashed and burned. I was just like, every mile became harder and harder and harder. And I'm like, there's something to this. And it doesn't matter like what you're running. It feels like there's a point in the run. Like as an example, if I was running a half marathon, I bet I wouldn't have cruised through the first, you know, all of it, fine. I would have probably hit mile six or mile seven and got in my own head again. So using some of these methods when, when some of that stuff happens, I think is really important and giving people tools for that. So can you explain the five, four, three, two, one, and then maybe even the PMR method as well? Yeah, that's such an interesting anecdote. I had a very similar experience in my first marathon. I, I, um, I didn't know exactly where I was on in the route. Um, I didn't have a watch. Um, I, it was my first experience. I was just running it for the experience and I was really tired. And I thought I was, you know, I kind of thought in my mind, we must be, you know, the crowd was starting to fill, so we must be close to the finish line. And somebody shouted, only three miles to go. I thought, what? It, it, and it just killed me. It absolutely killed me. Um, so, so I think sometimes the things that people shout that they think is helpful <laughs> yeah. can be really helpful yeah. at that time. <laughs> Um, so very similar experience. So, so the five, four, three, two, one. Um, again, it, it's a very useful. So it's called grounding technique, and it's it's a very useful strategy to get control back over our attention. And actually, you know, the, the strategies I mentioned earlier, like focusing on the twenty of the twenty yard line or on the ball or whatever, uh, is just one very simple part of of the five, four, three, two, one that an athlete can use, you know, very quickly in the moment to get control back over their attention. So the full grinding technique is um, what we do is, is we kind of scan our environment and we, we, we find five things that we can see, four things that we can feel or touch, uh, three things that we can hear. This is where it gets challenging. Two things that you can smell and one thing that you can taste. And, you know, if you're trying to find all 15 things, that can be really difficult, especially as I say the, the last two. But the reason it's so useful is what it does is it grounds us back in the present moment. So we, we're really active with our environment, with the present moment, searching for these things that we can see or that we can smell or taste. Uh, you know, if I was to sit, as I'm sitting here right now, actively search for, for something, two things that I can smell, it's gonna be really challenging. I've got coffee sitting here, so, so that would certainly be one of them. But I wasn't really aware of that coffee until right now. So, so it really grinds us back in the present moment. And when we're anxious about something or think, take the, that marathon situation, we're thinking about, oh, I've still got all that distance to go and I, I feel wrecked already. So by grinding us back in the present moment, it allows us to gain a little bit of control and break that sometimes negative chain, negative cycle of thoughts that we might have. Uh, the, the other one you mentioned, PMR, um, is, is, is a relaxation uh, technique, but it can be a grinding technique as well, similar to the, the breathing one. These are all examples of grinding technique that, that get us back in the present moment. 
Well, the PMR1 is much more sophisticated. And actually, in, in, in the book, we include a link to uh, an audio of the PMR technique and also have an appendix for it. And um, PMR stands for progressive muscular relaxation. And in the PMR technique, what we do is we progressively go through all the muscles in our body, first of all, tensing them. So, so it usually start, start, starts with your dominant hand. And what you do is, is you clench your fist uh, and squeeze it as tight as you can. So you really notice the tension for about three seconds. Uh, and then you release and, and relax. And then you repeat, go to, go to your other hand, both hands together and work your way up your arms, your shoulders, your back, where a lot of us tend to feel tension when, when we get anxious about something. And, and ultimately, from our face right the way down our body to, to our toes. And the full sequence takes quite a bit of time. It can take 15, 20 minutes to complete the, the full sequence the first time and as we're learning it. But the theory behind it is that by progressively tensing and then relaxing the muscles in our body, the theory is that a tense or anxious mind can't exist inside a relaxed body. So by relaxing our body, it helps to relax our mind. And, and so, sometimes I do this in uh, kind of workshops with, with students and athletes, with students especially. Please don't take this the wrong way, but very often by doing this, I send my students to sleep. <laughs> no, I <laughs> can imagine. Naturally, yeah. Naturally, but, but, but yeah, doing this because it, it is so relaxing and it has happened that you know during workshops, people do fall asleep in this because it's very relaxing. Um, and I think for, for an athlete for a presentation, that's important to know as well, because this is really maybe something that's best done maybe, you know, the night before performance or practice it certainly much before that. Not something you would necessarily do the full 15, 20 minutes immediately before you, you take the court or take the pitch. Um, but a very short version can be useful. So, so, so the other part of this, this process is that by tensing and then relaxing, we increase our awareness of muscle tension and we become much more aware of uh, I'm feeling tension in my shoulders or my back or you know wherever we might feel it. So on the court, if, if somebody's feeling tense, a very quick tense and relax can help to, to lower that arousal level in the moment. Um, and again, depending on the context, get them into a, a much better performance state, more relaxed camera performance state. Um, so yeah, it's two, two really helpful techniques, I think, to, to, to deal with uh, anxiety, work in slightly different ways. One helps to, to reduce the level of arousal, so that's the PMR technique. And then the grinding 54321 um, helps to distract us from maybe the, the negative or unhelpful thoughts that we might be having in a moment. I think circling back to the self-confidence side of this, self-confidence to really feel good about what you're going into preparation is so key but preparation you need to have goals and you need to do things like chunking those goals and a lot of things that I want to get into now but what are what are some of the reasons people fail to meet their goals oh well um there's so many um I think initially it can be just simply failing to, to get started um one of the key things, and I'll actually bring just the strategy in here as well, which is we've kind of been alluding to actually when we talked about you know preparing for obstacles and situations that might happen in an event. One thing in 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 research that the scientists have known for about for a long time is that there there is a very poor relationship between the goals we set and our actual behaviour. And and the classic example is New Year's resolutions. You know we we all you know a lot of people classically 
typically traditionally set set New Year's resolutions, and very often these are around behaviors we've been speaking about, like like exercise, like getting more sleep, like eating better, all those kind of things. But there's a gap between those goal intentions and our actual behavior, and we don't always follow through in them. Or if we do, we get derailed very early in that process. The stats for um, gym membership is, is something like after two months, almost half people have, have quit, have, have dropped out. And so, so that's typically how it happens. So the, the strategy that we spoke about earlier, if, which is called if-then planning or implementation intentions, um, what we do in that strategy is, is we, we think about situations or obstacles that we might encounter towards our goal achievement that might get in the way of us achieving our goal and develop plans or develop uh, strategies to counter that obstacle. So if X happens, then I will do Y. If exercise and getting more exercise is my goal, and if, if the if situation is that I get home from work, I'm feeling really tired and I just don't want to get out the door, then, and, and the then is, then is what I will do if I feel like that. And the then might be, you know what, I'm not going to even think about it. I'm going to get my gear on. I'm going to go straight out. And I might even have a plan just to go out for two minutes. That might be my plan going out. But once I get out and once I'm out there, I might actually go for my full, you know, five-mile training run that I planned or, or whatever it might be. So that might be my then to overcome that, that sort of situation. The other kind of things that we can do during, which I think is part of really helpful goal setting as well, is um, breaking down a much bigger goal into to more manageable chunks um, uh, and setting micro goals. So again, you know, if, if we've got this task that we, we're trying to do that might seem absolutely overwhelming. So, so, so again, training for an ultra distance event for most people probably seems absolutely overwhelming. So we might break that down to, to smaller, more manageable and, and me too. <laughs> more manageable <laughs> chunks. So we can do this in a lot of different ways. We we can sort of, you know, through your training pro process and you might think, gosh, I, I, I like how how far away is the event, Joe? How how much more time do you have till till the race? It's at the end of September. Okay, so, so you might have you might think of, of, of those months that lie ahead and think, wow, I've got all these months of training ahead of me. And that can be overwhelming. And, and that can be a reason why people sometimes stop because they think, I just can't do that. But breaking it down to, you know, what I've got to do today, what I've got to do this week, and, and just getting through those chunks. And that applies to the race itself. You know, when, when you start that race, really all you've got to worry about at the start is that first hill or, or maybe getting to that first checkpoint or, or whatever. Um, and one of the quotes we have in the book actually comes from um, an Olympic marathoner that, that, that I'd interviewed for a study. And even she spoke about, you know, if you stand at the start line of a marathon, I think I've got 26.2 miles to go here, you would probably, you know, turn around and go home again. Um, so she speaks about, again, this is an Olympic marathon, or she speaks about just focusing on the first five miles, get through that, then the next few miles and, and just chunking and, and breaking it down. And I think that's a great strategy for, for any kind of um, goal that we might have to, to help, uh, help us in terms of our, our goal achievement. Um, there's lots of others because again there's different obstacles in the midpoint of a goal sometimes what happens in the midpoint of a goal is that we maybe become distracted by um, competing goals or, or different priorities that we might have uh, in our life uh, and this is actually where emotion sometimes comes into it as well and there's a really interesting study that we talk about in the book where um, students were set these competing goals so they had a, a primary goal and a series of secondary goals 
Um, the primary goal was a weight loss goal, and then the secondary goal were, were goals like uh, I think it was you know saving money, study time, spending time with their friends, etc. Um, and what they found was that early in the process, when people felt they were making good progress, but still quite a long way from from their goal, the positive emotions associated with with making good progress increase their engagement with that primary goal. And, and that makes sense, you know, I've started well, I'm doing well, this is going good, I can keep going. And so I, I, I prioritize that goal and put more effort into the goal. But as they got later in the goal striving process and as they got nearer to completing their goal and they still felt they were making good progress, they actually reduced the amount of effort they dedicated to that first goal and spent more time on their other goals. So they, they maybe spent less time focusing on their weight loss goal, which again was you know, exercise behaviors, nutritional behaviors, and maybe more time with their friends or socializing and things like that. And this is really important because what it shows is that emotions that we might normally think of as good as bad. So feeling good, we normally would say, well, that's a good emotion. We want to experience that. But during goal striving, that feeling good can actually be something that derails us, that causes us to lose sight of the, the, the goal that we're aiming for and what we're trying to achieve. And, and again, and maybe this would be helpful for you, Joel. I've made every mistake in the mm -hmm. book. I have been in, in marathons where I had a, a time that I wanted to achieve. I, a couple of years ago, I was trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Uh, and with about three miles to go, I looked at my watch and I was like, now, with three months ago, you cannot calculate very well and do math very well. But with about three months to go, I was like, I'm on track for my goal. I, I, I'm going to achieve it. I'm going to do it. And then just my mind started to go into things like, so So it was in Berlin. Uh, I was away with my wife. We were. I started thinking, oh, you know, Ali's back just a little bit here so that, you know, I won't be too tired and we can have a nice dinner this evening. That's the crazy thoughts that started to come into your mind. So my goals, just an example of how my goals shifted. I reduced the effort in my race. I prioritized other goals and hey, guess what? I missed out on the time by I think about a minute and 20 seconds or something like that. Wow. So it shows how we can get derailed in our goals even by feeling good. Uh, and so those are kind of things to be aware of as well in the goal striving process. And in the book, I guess we, we talk a little bit about that and go into some strategies that, that can be helpful in that scenario as well. Uh, it probably is a good time to say that I've made every mistake in the book. And so the strategies really were for my learning as much as anything else as well. I know one of the things that I struggle with, and I'm sure others do as well, is procrastination or this thinking that, oh, I'll just wait till Monday or I'll just wait till the first of the month or I'll just wait till the beginning of next year. And it's been proven that the best time to do things is right now, like right when you think about them or you know, within reason, within, a, within that threshold of time, um, within maybe a day. So... I want to kind of unpack that a bit. Why, why is that? Why do we want to procrastinate things? And how important is it to take action quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I think for, for again, it, it depends on the task. Sometimes if we think that a task is going to be yeah, really effortful or really unpleasant, and that could be from you know going for a run or whatever it might be to... Um, filling out a lengthy application form or, or you know, filing tax returns, or I think is, is an example we use in the book. Um, things that we we don't think necessarily will be a pleasant task. Very often we, we tend to pull off and, and, and put back. Uh, and some of the strategies that, that we spoke about can be really helpful there. Again, that, that if-then planning strategy. And so, so the, the then in, in situations can be like that is, you know, if I find myself putting this off or, or you know, whatever, 
then is and then can be taking immediate action and, and actually doing something about the task right now. So, so those are those are kind of some of the reasons um, that we we tend to put something off. Um, and I refer back to it's such a helpful strategy, and, and we present that strategy in, in chapter one, the if then planning strategy, as as just a really helpful strategy and tool in, in so many situations to bridge, again, going back to what I said earlier, no matter what the goal is, no matter what the intention is, and the intention might be, I'm going to complete this application form. The relationship between our intentions and our actual behaviours is quite weak. And this is one strategy that can be really helpful to, to, to bridge that gap. How do, you, how do you take this, just to dive into that a little more, how do you take this desire to do something, actually do it other than by saying to yourself, oh, I'm going to start now. Like many people have a desire to lose weight or get in shape. Where does, aside from procrastination um, and laying a plan out, what can someone do or why do they not take that thought and turn it into action? Um. <laughs> It can be a lot of different reasons. Um, I, I'm going to talk about one area of, of kind of research about that, and, and I'll explain why. And it kind of links back to what, what I was saying earlier about sometimes the things that we want to do can seem overwhelming, can seem too difficult, can, can seem too challenging, and, and, and it's one of the reasons why we might not then follow through on, on our intentions and on our behaviours. And this, is, this for me is a really fascinating area of research. Um, about the actual nature of, of the, the what we want to do, the goals that we set for, for what we want to do. Um, by the way, what I'm about to talk about, I wrote a whole chapter on, I wrote a whole chapter on setting goals and, mm. and pretty much the entire chapter didn't make it into the book because the reflection that Scott and I had after this process was, you know, people set goals anyway, people know how to set goals. Um, and very often we frame those as, as so the smart guidelines, specific, measurable, etc. So I'm going to take an example of um, a goal that we've all probably heard of, which is walking 10,000 steps a day. So to get more physically active, that might be a target that's commonly in messaging about um, health guidance, 10,000 steps a day is, is typically one that's used. Now, if I'm starting on that journey, so, so you know, you, you ran 18 miles at the weekend, achieving 10,000 steps is, is, is pretty easy for you through the training that you're doing. But for somebody who's beginning on a journey, actually that, guideline can be perceived as overwhelming, um, especially if I'm coming from, from a very, very low baseline. So one of the reasons why people don't get started uh, translating their intention to get more active into an actual behaviour is because the behaviour itself can seem um, overwhelming and it's something that I can't do and I'm, I'm not able to do. So it actually feeds back to the self-confidence and efficacy that we spoke about earlier as well. Well, the fascinating area of research is around something called open goals. Um, and this is an area of research that's really only a few years old. It was started by a researcher called Christian Swan in, in about 2017. I think he published the first study on this. Um, and what an open goal does is instead of setting a specific measurable target like 10,000 steps, it's more about starting the behaviour and seeing how well I can do. So let's take somebody who's trying to get more physically active and on average over the first week of, of trying to get out, walking more, whatever it might be, they average about five, 6,000 steps a day. When we sort of compare that to the goal, SMART goal of 10,000 steps, we might perceive that as, as very negative underachievement. We might think, 
Well, you know, I, I tried really hard to get more active this week and I still didn't meet that target. I still didn't really meet that goal despite my efforts. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to quit. And that can be the kind of thing that happens. So the research on goal setting, what, what it suggests is that by setting an open goal, by getting more active and seeing how well I can do, that same 6,000 steps could be perceived very differently. Instead of being a missed target, it can be, wow, you know, I tried to get more active this week and I achieved 6,000 steps per day. Before that, I was doing virtually nothing. I did really well. Now, now again, think back to what we said about self-belief. That achievement can grow my belief that, you know, if I keep at this, I can, you know, get more active, get more fit. So, and we know self-efficacy, that belief is also motivational. So by achieving, I can feel more motivated to continue that. But what they've actually shown in some studies is that when people are set an open goal, even though they might achieve the same level of performance, so, so the, the studies had people do six minute walking tasks and how far they could walk in those six minutes. And whether people were set in a specific goal or an open goal, generally the walking distance was about the same. But how they perceived that trial and how they felt about the walking task was much differently. And beginners found the open goal condition much more uh, pleasant, much more enjoyable, and they felt much less pressured to achieve, uh, well, to, to perform in the open goal rather than achieve a specific goal. So this is something that's really important, I think, because what it says is that the types of goals that we set right at the very start can impact whether we follow through in that behavior and, and actually maintain that behavior longer term. And these things about um, the survey comes I mentioned there, like how pleasant it feels during the task. We know from research on physical activity, that is one of the most important outcomes for longer term adherence, that it's actually something that during the task feels pleasant, feels more enjoyable. Uh, and the less pleasant it feels, the less likely we're, we are to stick, uh, stick with it. So any strategy that can increase the, the enjoyment or the pleasure we perceive during is more likely to lead to longer term um, adherence. So, so that's one area and that then opens up a whole other, you know, set of strategies about things we can do. You know, I, you might be listening to this podcast as you walk or run right now and hopefully it's making your walk or run feel more pleasant. Great, that, that is something that might increase your walking or running behaviour because you associate it with, uh, with more pleasant feelings during, during the activity. So how do you balance that with the notion of being uncomfortable? Because a lot of this training I'm doing isn't pleasant. I don't have fun necessarily yeah. doing it, but I also know that growth doesn't necessarily come from feeling great all the time. Yeah. Um, two, two things on that. So, so one is a little bit of nuance with the open goal, smart goal research. Um, and the nuance in that is that more experienced people tend to prefer the specific goals. We like hitting our targets. We like measuring ourselves in, in some way uh, and, and seeing that we're progressing. So, so that might be getting faster, getting fitter or whatever. So that's one nuance in that. Beginners, open goals may be better. More experienced people, smart goals or specific goals, having targets might be better. The second one is that normally when we think of effort or, or things that, that are effortful, Normally, we, th we might think of those that, that as something unpleasant that we want to avoid. But actually, when we're chasing a goal, effort is also valued. And it's something that we, we value in that goal achievement process. So, so the narrative would go something like, um, I achieved that goal because I trained really hard. Uh, I, you know, it's not just the running I did. My diet was really good. I avoided all the junk food, all that sort of stuff. And that took a lot of self-control and a lot of effort. 
And so effort can be both costly, we're probably involved to, to avoid effort where we can, but it can also be valued. And we value it in that goal striving process because effort is what helps us to, to achieve that goal. So the things you describe as, you know, training is uncomfortable. A lot of the times it's unpleasant. And really what we're doing there is we're expending a lot of effort and our body sends us the message that this is something that's costly, you know, costs a lot of resources. Um, but we value that uncomfort, uh, discomfort and we value that effort because it helps us achieve a, a really important goal that we're striving to achieve. And we can apply that to lots of different areas of, of, of life. You know, uh, going to an interview, doing a presentation isn't, are not exactly the most enjoyable or pleasant experiences that we might do. But we value the effort and maybe the discomfort that comes with them because, again, we do it to achieve a much higher, much greater goal that we're striving to achieve. And that might be um, a promotion or maybe a student trying to pass their undergraduate degree or, or whatever it is. So, so effort is, is valued in those situations as well. Do these same concepts apply to eliminating negative things? Like let's say you want to reduce alcohol consumption or eliminate it or stop smoking or stop eating junk food. How, how do these concepts apply? I think a whole different set of strategies start to, start to open up here as well. And, and immediately my mind jumps to uh, some, some brilliant research on habit formation and, and habit formation strategies and strategies about how we break uh, I'm not going to call them bad habits necessarily, but certainly unwanted habits um, and how we form new habits. And, you know, one of the things that we often try to do when we try to, to lose or break those unwanted habits is we, we use effortful strategies, you know, so it relates back to that. So it's almost like suppression, suppressing the desire to, to, you know, have that junk food or to have a drink or, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and by the way, this can this could potentially lead into a whole lot of you know conversation about sort of more clinical things, which 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 we'll avoid. But with the simple habit uh, breaking strategies, really what they sort of focus on is less about using effortful self control to change those behaviours, and it's more about how we shape our environment. So, for example, if if I'm trying to stop eating candy or reduce the amount of junk food that I'm trying to eat or whatever, you know what? If if that's sitting in a cupboard in my kitchen it's going to take a lot of self-control not to have it and it will always be on my mind until eventually we know self-control is a depletable resource eventually i'm going to give in to the urge and just have it so by shaping our environment we reduce the triggers for, for those behaviors in our environment so 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 literally don't have them in your cupboard don't have them in your house and if they're not there you're less likely to engage in self-control uh, or need to engage in self-control and obviously less likely to give in to, to the urge. And, and again, there's a whole series of things, I guess, that, that are involved in that. I mean, that goes right back to maybe sometimes not buying those things in, in the first place and how we can avoid triggers in our shopping environment to, to, to go right back to that situation as well. The other thing is kind of changing behaviours with another behaviour. So instead of simply trying to stop a behaviour, um, we replace it with another behavior. So instead of, you know, it's that time in the evening where I normally have some junk food or, or some candy or whatever it might be, engage in a different behavior. You know, so I might just take those 20 minutes and, and go out for a walk, a walk with my dog or, or whatever it might be. Um, a different behavior that replaces the trigger, replaces the response to the trigger that, that I would otherwise have. Uh, and again, that reduces my need for, for effortful self-control, which we know is, is a really limited, poor way to try to break some of those unwanted habits. Oh, I love that. And 
the the other thing that you you mentioned is if you are having an off day, and I can imagine if you do indulge in one of those less desirable habits, you might start feeling negative. And then it's also about reframing instead of saying, oh, I was a three of 10 today. Maybe it's your, you were a three of three because that was those were the resources you had available. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's a nice reframing strategy. And, and actually alongside that as well, um, some nice research that we talked about in, in the study on habit formation. Uh, one of the messages that came out on, on that study, so these were very simple um, uh, health-related behaviors like, you know, having having water through the day, drinking more water through the day, um, or engaging in exercise or whatever. One thing they found was that missing the occasional day did not necessarily, and I suppose the emphasis is on occasional, but missing the occasional day did not necessarily impact on the habit formation uh, overall. So I think also two things. One, not beating yourself up excessively if, if you miss an occasional day. And I like your reframing strategy of it was a three out of three day rather than a three out of 10 day. Um, I think that can be really, really uh, useful. But also, you know, if I do feel slightly bad because I missed a day or, or whatever, again, that emotion is not necessarily bad. Like in the same way that feeling good is not always a good thing for, for goal striving because feeling bad can give me the stimulus to double up on my efforts the, the next day as well. And that can be helpful. That can be useful. So I think it's kind of understanding sometimes our emotions and how those emotions can be either helpful or unhelpful regardless of whether they're pleasant or, or unpleasant in different situations. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's something we all face, right? I mean, we're 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 not. I haven't met a perfect person. I'm far from that, so it's it's a matter of just being able to cope and accept that you're going to have off days and planning in advance that you know that's going to happen and giving yourself tools to get out of the negative emotions that you may feel from those. Um. Yeah. And, and even going right back to that, that if then planning strategy is, you know, if, yeah. if I miss a day, then, and the then could be how I'll handle those emotions or what I'll do the next day or, or whatever. And again, that can help us get back on track as well. Are there things we didn't cover with regards to creating new habits that you would, you want to point out? Um. I think that, well, there's quite a bit, there's quite a number of steps involved in creating new habits. Um, I think the one, 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 of, one of the key ones for me is understanding that, you know, understanding what a habit is and understanding what a habit behavior is and, and understanding that one of the key things that triggers, or sorry, one of the things that, that leads to habit is, is having triggers in our environment. So habits are behaviors that we do that are triggered and they're automatic responses to uh, triggers in our environment. Um, so, so a very simple example is, you know, when I get up first thing in the morning, first thing I do is, is, is I make a cup of coffee. Um, I generally want coffee, but the trigger is getting up in the morning, getting, going into my kitchen. And the first thing I do, the automatic behavior in that situation is starting to, to make coffee. Um, and that's, that's the interesting thing about habits is that we don't really engage a lot of thought or self-control to engage in habits. They're automatic responses to triggers in our environment. So one of the key things about, I guess, forming new habits, wanted habits, be it health related or whatever it might be, is uh, completing those behaviors in response to a trigger in our environment and associating the habit uh, 
with the, with the trigger and then the habit behavior that follows uh, on from that. Um, so for example, if I want to drink more water, you know, generally what I do is I carry a bottle around with me each day. Uh, it's always there when I see that bottle in my environment, that's the trigger to, to drink a little bit more water. And it's just something I don't even think about uh, really anymore. Um, and that's just one example. Of, uh, of, of how habits are associated and, and, and very different from, from other behaviours that we do. I think the other thing is kind of understanding as well that habits can take quite a long time to form and it takes longer time for more complex behaviours like exercising than it does for relatively simple behaviours like, like drinking water. Uh, and I guess the key thing there in terms of habit formation is, is constantly repeating that behaviour in response to that trigger in our environment and building up that association between the trigger and the behavior over time. Um, th those are some of the key steps to forming new habits um, and, and reversing them, I guess, to, to break unwanted ones as well. I didn't know that makes, uh, that makes a ton of sense. You have a new book you're working on, right? Right now, even though you just launched your other book? Is that what I read? Yeah, the, the things you do when you've completed a goal and, and you're in that kind of moment where you think, oh, what am I going to do next? Yeah. And the thing you do next is you sign another, sign up for another book. So, um, yeah, so, so this is a book uh, uh, called The Psychology of Running. Um, and it's one that will be uh, coming out in uh, late 2022. Um, and really it's going to be a bit of a journey about, um, you know, well, Broadly, the psychology of running, but but I suppose I guess about a lot of strategies that can help us during running, um, about some of the psychological limits to 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 endurance performance, some of the stuff that Alex wrote about in 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 endure, um, but also actually bringing in some other areas related to running and psychology as well. So some things that I love that we we mentioned in in this book as well are. Um, some of the the programs that are have developed and built around running. Um, so some, there's, there's one that I absolutely love called Girls on the Run. And, and what it does is it teaches uh, young girls things like emotion regulation strategies or strategies to, be, to build their confidence, but all around the medium of uh, running and, and learning to, to, to run. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about some programs like that in the Psychology of Running book as well. Again, along the same theme as this book to show that things that we learn through sport, uh, and in this case through running, can help us in, in other areas of life as well. So, so that's one. I think it's out in October 2022. So quite a way away yet, and still lots of writing to be done too. Right from that, as yeah, well. right on. Well, I can't thank you enough for the conversation, and I highly, highly recommend this book, The Genius of Athletes. If you thought we got into a lot of good stuff today, there's so much more in here. I wish I could go chapter by chapter and like ask you different questions, but I think we covered it broadly pretty well. Uh, and I, I again just. Can't uh, can't thank you enough. I haven't read a book in a while that just gave you the tools to get through and and to help you in various aspects of your life. Again, a lot of this, if you're listening and find the athletic side not super relevant, you can apply everything in here to anything in life, which is what I love about it. Great. Um, th thank you, Joe. Thank, thank, thank you for having me on to... Uh, to talk about our book. Um, I actually I really, really enjoyed our conversation and, uh, uh, and I can't thank you enough for that. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Didn't I tell you he was the real deal? Huge shout out to my guest, Dr. Noel Brick. I got so much out of this conversation, but I think one of the biggest takeaways is 
planning out your self-talk as a strategy. I've been talking about this ultra race I'm doing and I know the course is going to be intense, but planning what will be going through my thoughts in different parts of the course now will be part of my training plan. No puts all of these tools into practice himself and I can't recommend this book, The Genius of Athletes, enough. Mental fortitude is so important in everything we do, which is why I'm excited to keep this mindset focus going next week with my friend Russ Rausch, the founder of Vision Pursue. Rush trains professional athletes, works with a lot of NFL teams, and is just an amazing uh, human being as well. So I can't wait for that one. Until then, remember, you, me, we are not almost there.